Hi, this is Oscar. This is Sanjana. And this is Hayden. You are listening to Daily Discoveries, and we are part of The Daily at the University of Washington, and this is the podcast where we discuss new discoveries in Science Weekly. Uh, hello, everyone. This week, we'll be discussing the Nobel Prizes that were awarded yesterday. And we'll be specifically talking about the Nobel Prizes in physics, medicine, and chemistry, as we are a science podcast. And I think we are going to start off with the physics one and sort of discuss that a little bit, and then discuss the other ones as well. So the Nobel Prize in physics was awarded to Alan Aspect, John F. Clauser, and Anton Zeilinger for, like, quote, as the Nobel Academy said, for experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell inequalities, and pioneering quantum information science. So what I'm going to try to do is break that down. Basically, what everyone is saying uh, about the experiments that these guys performed is that they proved or like they won the Nobel Prize because they proved Einstein wrong. And that also just adds to the fact that this science isn't, or the explanation of this is going to be quite difficult because it is information that even science or even Einstein uh, wasn't 100% sure about. First, I figured maybe we should, I should um, talk a little bit about what quantum mechanics even is. Just quickly distinguish that with classical physics. So quantum mechanics is, it differs from the classical ways in which we describe like properties of objects in physics. So classical physics is what most have learned in high school, I think, which is that of like Isaac Newton, um, where he can use his rules of F equals MA, for example, is to predict where an object is in the future if information about this object is given now, such as, I don't know, velocity or position of a particle. And you, if you know things about its velocity and momentum and so on, you can always predict where that particle will be in the future if it is in an environment where it's not interactive with anything. However, quantum mechanics was created in the early 1900s as a way to explain the behavior of smaller particles, because they do not behave in the way that classical physics explains, predicts the way particles behaves. So quantum mechanics describes these smaller particles' behaviors as a probability. So if a given position of an electron now, and like you, the same thing, you know, it's velocity, whatever. Now we can use quantum mechanics to explain the probability of where this electron will be in space using something called a wave function, which I will not get into. Yeah, you can take quantum mechanics if you want to learn about that. Quantum mechanics basically can often be hard to understand because it goes against common sense because you can't actually predict exactly where something will be. You can just predict, you just have the probability of where this particle will be. And to put that in other words, if you do the same experiment over and over and over in causal physics, you'll always get the same experiment or always get the same result. Whereas if you do the same experiment over and over and over again, in quantum mechanics, you would get different results every time. But those different results would add up to that probability where you expect the particle to be. And Einstein, he, he hated the idea of quantum mechanics. Him and along with the, the guys that came up with it, they um, argued and discussed this for the rest of his life. And he, along with other physicists, 
they actually created an experiment where they used quantum mechanics to find an inconsistency where they used entangled particles, which can be described as two particles that this is like just a way of kind of explaining what they are, but it's not exactly true what it is, but they can kind of be described as like two particles that came from one particle and this like one particle split up. Now, if this one particle split up, you expect probably that the two particles are going to go in two opposite directions to, in order to hold like momentum has to stay the same. It still has to stay zero to conserve momentum. That's what I was like. You wouldn't expect, for example, once this splits up, both particles move to the right with the same speed because then the momentum would not be conserved if the particle is just standing still in the beginning. And then this could be explained further if you use the idea of spin, where like if you have you have this big particle, it's not spinning or anything, and then it splits up, and then one particle is spinning counterclockwise, and the other one would then have to spin clockwise <laughs> in order to conserve momentum. Because in order to serve angular momentum, where basically they, the two spins cancel out. And that way you still have, you've conserved momentum. And so what you can say is that these two particles that this one particle spit up into are entangled. Because if you measure the, the one of the particles and you find that it's going clockwise, then you immediately know that the spin of the other one is going to be anti-clockwise, counterclockwise. <laughs> and so... The question is, how does the other particle know that this measurement has been done on the other one? And the classical argument is that the particles were already in this state. Like one particle was already spinning counterclockwise, one was spinning clockwise. Whereas quantum mechanics would explain this as that the particle somehow gets a signal and that it, this signal is instantaneous and it immediately knows that because one particle is spinning clockwise, the other one then knows that that it has to spin counterclockwise in order to sustain angular momentum. And this is exactly what Einstein could not accept. So in this experiment, he still got the results that you would expect from quantum mechanics, but because the results that he got goes against his theory of rel relativity, which is like that things travel at the speed of light and nothing can travel faster than that, and obviously, if entangled particles are really, really far away from each other, then if you measure one, then expect the instantaneous information of the other one to be instantaneous, which is faster than light. So I said, I couldn't accept this. And so he came up with something that there was hidden variables that like allowed for these quantum mechanical randomness results to be true. So then this guy, John Bell, I think in the 60s or something, he made an inequality equation, which disproved this hidden variable idea. And now getting to the actual Nobel Award winners, John F. Clauser, he experimentally tested this John Bell model and proved it wrong. So which in turn proved Einstein's model wrong and proved quantum mechanics right. And Alan Aspect close some of the loops with like further experiments that could have tainted the results. So like made sure that it is actually true that John F. Clauser's experiments could prove quantum mechanics right, AKA Einstein wrong. And then Anton Zeilinger took this further and he studied entangled states to understand something called quantum teleportation, where 
if two particles are entangled, then there can be a particle in between those two particles that is entangled to both of them. That way you can kind of, the information travels to one entangled and the other one. And he, he kind of uses this application to the new development of quantum computers. Because if the information is traveling instantaneously, then yeah, those computers will probably be pretty fast. Yeah, I thought, I mean, it's a little bit beyond my total, like I, the mathematics I could not understand. But I thought it was a cool prize. And I feel like as we get more and more computational, these physics, like the all the quantum stuff will become more and more important. I feel yep. like seeing the quantum like computers and stuff used in other research, I feel like that would like help us understand more about how it can be used and how it's like helpful. I mean, yeah. quantum mechanics is it's already used today. It, it works to describe the ways atoms and stuff work, and that's why you learn it as a chemist. But yeah, it can't really be fully explained, which is really interesting about it. But I mean, it it, it the concepts or the <laughs> the way that you explain quantum mechanics through equations and stuff it does actually work. So. Yeah, I don't know actually what the applications other than quantum computers are. I'm sure there's so many different things that we use in our everyday life, which wouldn't be possible without quantum mechanics. I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I know that like some of the techniques have been starting to like be applied to larger fields. For instance, there was a paper that I looked at recently um, describing like antibiotic resistance or being able to predict like how bacteria will react to different like combinations of antibiotics the better term but um mm -hmm. they basically took methods for predicting like a lot of the like the statistical methods and they just applied it to this system and it worked phenomenally well <laughs> like they use quantum mechanical prediction methods yeah oh cool it was actually kind of crazy like i'm not gonna lie it was a very like looking at the results section blew my mind um <laughs> yeah that's so, interesting because I haven't really seen it applied in, in bigger levels like that. So that's cool. Because yeah. when I think of quantum mechanics, I just think of like electrons and atoms at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just some of the like the statistical methods for describing. Yeah, like, I see. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, and well, it's funny. There was an interview with one of the... Think about the applications of it and whatnot. There's an interview with one of the the guys who won it. And I don't remember which of the three it was. But he was basically like... To be honest, I don't understand all the applications of this. I just did this because I was curious about it. I mean, I mean, that was his like takeaway is follow your curiosity, not necessarily the applications of everything. Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite funny. One of them, I, I think it was John Bell, because I mean, he did the initial experiment. And have you heard of uh, a physicist, quite famous, Richard Feynman? Yeah. So I think John Bell, I think, I think this is true. So when John Bell like did this experiment and it kind of proved that quantum mechanics is like real <laughs> he went into richard Feynman's office and explained it to him and richard Feynman kicked him out and was like of course quantum mechanics is true now go do some real science <laughs> because like it. Feynman always believed that quantum mechanics was true but i mean no one actually Had proved proven it. it experimentally yeah but i think it is a good thing that it has been proven experimentally because yeah that way yeah and well, i think they definitely deserved a nobel prize for proving einstein wrong <laughs> yeah well, thinking about that idea of like exploring things for curiosity's sake, I will we will transition into the Nobel Prize in Chemistry.
which was awarded to Barry Sharpless, Morton Meldell, and Carolyn Bertozzi. And the reason I say curiosity is because if you go back and you listen to Carolyn Bertozzi's Nobel, like Nobel seminar, I actually don't know the exact term for it, but at the very end bit, she discusses some of the chemistry that they used by uh, Staudinger, Wittig, and then there was one other chemist, and I'm forgetting his name, and I'm so sorry to him. Very, they're very long dead, but they had reported on some of the earlier chemistry, and her point was that it's important to continue to fund basic science because not we don't always understand the applications right now, but it's one of those things that who knows maybe in a hundred maybe like maybe we won't really be able to fully use some of the quantum computing for another eighty years or fifty years or whatnot, but when like when we can or when it is rolled out, it will you know it's gonna be crazy. But anyway, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded for click chemistry, which sounds kind of funny, but basically the application of it at least is this idea of bioorthogonal chemistry. And the reason it's called click is because you can take two functional groups when a functional group is just any sort of part of a molecule that has a specific function. And so you can take two of them. So on two separate molecules and through a really simple reaction, you can click them together. So the idea of like clicking a seatbelt together, same idea, you can click two molecules together. And the reason it's really important is because you can use functional groups that won't react with biological molecules. So they are non-native to a biological setting, which basically allows you to probe biology. For instance, if you feed a cell some sugar and it has this non-natural functional group on it, when the cell takes it up and uses the sugar, it's not going to react with a non-functional part it's going to, you know, kind of hang out on the side of the sugar doing whatever it does. And then say you want to figure out where that sugar went. You could then append something that fluoresces and you can track the location of those sugars. And this is actually one of the, uh, some of the original work that Carolyn Bertozzi did applying this chemistry that Barry Sharpless and Morton Meldell developed or helped develop to image cell membranes and looking at the appendage of sugars to proteins on cell membranes and how that changes during cancer. Um, so the big part of this is the ability for us to, as I said, bioorthogonal. So our orthogonal just means perpendicular too. So you're coming at a 90 degree angle and it's this idea that we can really with high specificity intersect some biological process without interfering with it. So yeah, that is the, the Nobel Prize in chemistry in a, in a nutshell. There was more work done as well, because initially this click chemistry that they were using was pretty slow. And so it was not only the application and the, the use of chemistry in cells, but also the development of new types of click chemistry that will occur on a time scale that allows us to monitor really important things like, for instance, mitosis. So the splitting of cells, the replication, so like cellular replication, that's actually a pretty, that's become a more common application of it. And then outside of just basic sciences, so, you know, understanding the differences between cancer cells and uh, healthy cells, understanding cell division, but also the application of this for biosensors. So if you can understand that certain sugars will condense differently in cancer, you can then look for that. Um, and so this click chemistry has started to become more and more used for biosensors, for potential therapeutics. And yeah, that's kind of just a brief overview of chemistry in totality. And it's basically changed our ability 
and this is like, again, Nobel prizes are kind of changing our perception or our ability to do science. And click chemistry has changed our ability to probe and understand biological systems. Click chemistry reactions in themselves don't actually have to be non-bioreactive, right? It's just that that's what they were doing or what Carolyn Bertozzi was doing. So a big part of it is, yeah, it's so this idea of bioorthogonal. So in yeah. that they will not be reacting with like things inside the cell because right. we don't, what, what you don't want to do is introduce some functional group, right? Have it react a bunch and change the inside of the cell and say, oh, yes, cancer cells do this. When in reality, it's the functional group you've done. So sometimes you can think of like a triple bonded carbon will be used. They also use nitrogen, like three nitrogens bonded together. And those things just like don't occur biologically and they don't really react with biological molecules. So yeah, like the last thing you want to do is have some sort of functional group that changes the cells, the, uh, the state of the cells. And so that's that's the big part about bioorthogonal chemistry is you're not actually perturbing and or changing the cellular states. You're just kind of monitoring them. You're understanding them better. And so that's like, again, that was really why is it's changed how we can do biology and how we can monitor very um, like short-lived changes. So transient changes in biology, we can now monitor that with click chemistry because we're going to see that like, basically you see the direct incorporation of your functional group, you append your fluorophore. So you think that fluorence, uh, fluoresces and then boom, you can immediately see changes. So mm -hmm. it's actually cool. They've, um, if you go and you can look at zebrafish. So zebrafish are a really common model organism for vertebrae and they're translucent. So you can actually watch chemistry happening like inside of them. And that's the other thing is this chemistry isn't just in vitro. So in cell culture, they've also done it like in mice and zebrafish as well. So do they monitor the changes of the functional group, which do not affect the rest of the cell? So it's kind of like they monitor where those functional groups end up. So oh, okay. a lot of it's like trafficking, you know, do we see changes in like density? For instance, uh, a really common one, as I mentioned, are these glycoproteins. So the appendage of a sugar to a protein. And do we say changes in what sugars are appended to proteins? Do we see change in, changes in the density of these sugars, of these glycoproteins and monitoring things like that? So I'm going back to the question. Is all click chemistry bioorthogonal chemistry? Is all click? Well, I don't, I think click chemistry to some extent is the reaction, which is, yeah. but in, I think the, the context was like the click chemistry bioorthogonal was kind of, at least that's like the application of click chemistry in the bioorthogonal setting. So yeah. I don't know. Those are two different things, right? Like two different descriptors of the reaction. Well, yeah. Bioorthogonal, I guess, is the application of the click chemistry, but I would assume not all click chemistry has to be bioorthogonal. I think the big thing is it's just like the general reaction is not, which is just like a diazide and then you have your alkaline right. and then you react it with copper. You have your copper catalyst. But then, then my question is, what differs a click chemistry reaction from a regular reaction? I think it's just like the appendage. Like doesn't every reaction just click two molecules together? Or not every reaction, but like if you're reacting two molecules and they bind to each other. I think it was just the, the that initial reaction was named that. So like your diazide, okay. alkyne, the copper catalyst. Oh, it's like a specific reaction is called a quick chemistry reaction. Okay, I see. Yeah, like that, 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 that generally it's a diazide. They've developed other methods. So they have, you can, 
Um, so basically, molecules that are like in ring formations, especially like larger ones and whatnot, will have some level of strain against them because they're not, you know, they don't really like being conformed in that way. And so you can use large molecules, like an eight-membered ring, for instance, is a pretty strained molecule with an alkyne in it, which add even more strain. And so that one doesn't need a copper catalyst. But yeah, there are generally the the the, the OG copper catalyst ones. Are yes, your like OG click reactions. Cool. Really cool. Yeah. All right. Sunshine, are you ready to take it away? Yeah. So the Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology went to a Swedish scientist named Savante Pabo, who was able to uncover the complete Neanderthal genome from 40,000 year old bones. And he started this research in 2006, and he took he had to take great measures to carefully handle the ancient DNA, as he had a lot of issues um, in the past of samples being contaminated from the researcher's DNA. Today's advancements in sequencing technology allowed him to reconstruct the damaged DNA left by bacteria which had colonized the bones. In 2010, he published the Neanderthal genome, which scientists used to decipher how genetic differences in modern humans correlate with disease. Dr. Pabo and his team also found that people who had more severe symptoms from COVID had inherited a particular stretch of the Neanderthal DNA, and that one-third of the people in South Asia were known to have inherited this segment. Scientists also believed that modern humans were distinctive enough to not have had children with Neanderthals, but the research showed that belief was incorrect and that modern humans and Neanderthals have interbred and that people living in Europe and Asia derive 1-4% to of their genomes from Neanderthals. Dr. Pabo and his team also used their data to discover human migration patterns as well. And one question the scientists aim to answer from this research is what makes modern humans unique or distinctive? They have found genetic variants in modern humans that are not found in Neanderthals, but they haven't been associated with any traits, such as like forming social groups and things like that. Yeah, I thought this was a, a pretty cool prize. I mean, we discussed it, I think, last week now, but just like being able to sequence ancient DNA. And looking at how things have changed and you know how does that affect modern day civilization is, is pretty cool yeah it's amazing how, i mean it's not easy but it makes it a lot easier with these new sequencing te techniques that we have i mean think about how long just a couple like decades ago how difficult it was to sequence the human genome and now we're sequencing everything <laughs> yeah there are people whose entire phds were just okay we're gonna sequence the genome of a bacteria and now you can send your bacteria in and get it sequenced in like a week. <laughs> so, yeah. And you can get sequenced yourself. If you exactly. Want. I also think like the whole development is really cool because initially this guy, like he had done some sequencing of like mummies and then it turned out that there was too much contamination. And so like he had to throw away a lot of results and, you know, he had an interview and he was like, yeah, it's okay to be wrong. I mean, obviously he, that's a, that's a pretty large, like that's a pretty large issue, but he's like, yeah, it was an honest mistake. It's okay to be wrong. And then, you know, you own up, you figure out how to fix it. And that's what they've been able to do. And it's really cool. So how do they prevent these contaminants from getting in their samples? I don't entirely know. 
I know that they develop some sort of like clean room where they're not getting, because the issue is you get a combination of like microbial DNA and also like DNA from the people. But I don't know the exact how they're doing that sort of thing. Yeah, it says that he just designed like clean rooms that are dedicated to handling ancient DNA. Yeah, what I thought also was cool is they found a well, they they found an enzyme differing and like it's like a single amino acid mutation between Neanderthals and humans. And when they make that mutation in mice, the mice develop frontal cortexes, like a thicker frontal cortex in comparison to those within Neanderthal DNA. And so it's also just cool to like see how I yo, it's like, oh, look at these changes. really cool yeah i was just wondering how they're gonna link like genetic mutations to like modern human traits like i think they mentioned capacity for figurative art advanced innovation and complex cultures like how do you relate those yeah that's i don't know if that's a neuroscience combined with psychology question but that that seems a little far-fetched in my i don't know (laughs) Yeah, I would, I think I would tend to agree. It'd be, it'd be much harder to do things like that. But I, I suppose you could, you know, look at how do these change, like genetic changes lead to changes in the brain areas that are responsible for things like art and whatnot. Yeah. Those sorts of things. I think all in all, three very interesting and cool Nobel Prizes. Okay, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Daily Discoveries.